Hello and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. Hi Tabby. Hello Catherine. How are you? All right, very cold. <laughs> it is chilly. It's a chilly December day today, but this comes out in January. So, so happy new year. It's a new year. Happy new year. What are we talking about today? Stony Stratford. Yeah, we're talking about Stony Stratford. Which, if you don't know the geography of Milton Keynes, is sort of in the northwest of the designated area. And it's one of the original existing towns and villages before the new town was built. And if you don't know the geography of Milton Keynes and you haven't come up with a New Year's resolution yet, there's your New Year's resolution. Yeah, visit Milton Keynes and explore. <laughs> or learn the geography if you already live here. Yes, true. Look at a map. Google's free. <laughs> Google. Um, so it's one of the original like coaching in towns, isn't it? And it's on Watling Street. It's very kind of oldie-worldy, got lots of history. And so we'll be talking... A little bit about some of that stuff today. Absolutely, yeah, it was really important during the Civil War, though that's not what we're going to be talking about. No. Uh, but just just a little heads up: lots <laughs> of stuff happened in Stony during the Civil War. And yeah, it seems though we kind of broke their hearts a couple of episodes ago by saying that the cock and bull story wasn't originated there. We thought we'd talk about Stony today and highlight some interesting stuff. Absolutely. So I think we should move up Stony High Street. So. Okay. I yeah. was wondering if you knew anything about Coffridge Close because when I lived in Stony, that's where I went to do all my shopping. Oh, was it? Yeah. Interesting. That's exactly what it was meant for. So the plan for Milton Keynes highlights Stony Stratford as mainly a residential town with little employment actually. So this is in the late sixties. Interesting. It says it's main. It mainly acts as a shopping centre, uh, but suffers from adverse effects of through traffic along the high street. It can get quite busy. The plan also makes a point of saying that, quote, special care will have to be taken that all new development is sympathetic to the distinctive character of Stony Stratford. It's true. Stony does have, especially the high street, and you've got the Christmas lights or when you've got the nice banners out. It is really, it's a very specific look. Yeah, they definitely were recognising that the historic part of Stony Stratford would really contribute to the character of the new town. So they wanted to keep that. And the commercial plans for the city also highlight how much special attention needs to be paid to making sure the character of Stony is conserved. But it also says that some redevelopment is needed to create suitable buildings and access for modern retailing. As I said, they've got a lot of old kind of shops and stuff, which are really awesome. Um, but they wanted to kind of bring, make sure that they were providing facilities that were going to cater for the influx of the population. So house building under the Development Corporation started in the northwest of the designated area, right next to Stony. actually. I think Galley Hill was the first estate to be built. No way. Um, so immediately, as I said, the population of that area started increasing and the need to accommodate like the requirements of the residents um, was really important. So the corporation were planning for a new city centre, um, but they also recognised that people weren't going to want to go into the city centre for everything. Um, so they would still want local shops uh, to get their bits and pieces from. Like You don't want to go into the 
center for a pint of milk especially from stony because you've got two bus routes and it takes about you know 20 minutes half an hour depending on the traffic if, yeah. you, if you lose if you don't get something at tesco's and you have to go back out it's going to be kind of a pain it's not easy is it so you want your local shops and building on what's already there makes sense right which meant that stony stratford was to be a district center within the new town and this is where coffridge close comes in the corporation identified some buildings and land in Stony that could be redeveloped for a new commercial focus for the town. And these were near some derelict houses and um, working pubs and things like that. Um, and they had a large piece of land behind them, which apparently was owned by nine different owners. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it comprised an orchard, um, old tin shacks, gardens, outhouses and a tennis court, apparently. <laughs> I just like the idea of the outhouses, like, hello. We need to purchase your toilets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How much would you like for them, please? <laughs> and actually, this is a good example of the acquisition strategy of the corporation. People are always saying to me, um, like, about compulsory purchase of land in the new town and how much there was and how awful it was, etc. However, not much land was actually purchased compulsorily in the designated area. Uh, the corporation's aim was actually to acquire land by negotiation where possible. They only used compulsory purchase if time was tight. So if the negotiations were taking quite a while, they would start CPO kind of procedures just in case like they didn't manage to negotiate in time. They'd be like, oh, actually, we need this land really soon. But on the other hand, you could also kind of see that as a bit of a a threat as well mm -hmm. um like if you don't negotiate with us quickly we're just gonna compulsory purchase and so cpo stands for compulsory purchase order order yeah in this case at stony stratford they did start compulsory purchase order proceedings but uh, the owners of all the nine different owners uh, agreed to terms before the cpo needed to be implemented yeah. so design work started in 1970 uh, for a new building that was to provide shops offices community space and housing in a sympathetic way that would be in keeping with the character of the historic coaching town. Um, and I was reading a, a report actually which um, detailed the struggle the design team were having in relation to financial constraints and the provision of social and planning objectives uh, plus lots of changes that the county council uh, wanted as to where like the health centre was going to go and the library was going to go. Mm. So they had to make compromises on community spaces and the provision of housing for disabled people. And it just feels like an eternal story of where the needs of society and the marginalised suffer because it's not profitable enough to be inclusive. Right. Which <clears throat> is, um, we need to change that in this country. Uh, you know, if it costs a lot, we still need to do it because mm -hmm. it's important. A local residence group also wanted a public hall and cinema incorporated into the new development. But again, the idea was dropped due to finances. That would have been amazing. Stony Stratford Cinema? Yeah. Oh, would love that. That would have been really cool, like a little art house <sighs> cinema in Goffridge, yeah. guys. <laughs> I can't go into huge detail about context and changes and challenges because we don't have time and it's probably <laughs> not of like wider interest to everyone else. Um, but construction started in August 1973 and even after it started they were still making amendments to the design because <laughs> of all these challenges they were having. Um, but construction was finished in 1975 and Coffridge Close had its official opening ceremony in December 1975. So in a couple of years it'll be 50 years old. Oh nice! I hope they do something for the birthday. That would be really good wouldn't it? We'll have to see if they're doing anything. So what was there now after construction had finished? 
they had designed a red brick building with a colonnade frontage to the high street and a footprint echoing the other buildings on the high street so you know like they have um narrow frontages and then they go back quite a long way Crawfridge Close echoes that and they also tried to echo the small spaces prevalent in the rest of Stony Stratford where like you kind of enter through a narrow passageway and then you're in a small little courtyard and it's all a bit like that all over Stony. They tried to echo that in the design of Crawfridge Close and there were 11, entrance, 11 pedestrian entrances and you always came into the space under an arch or a pergola providing the feeling of like moving from the busy high street into a slightly more tranquil space. The building had shops, the supermarket, offices and housing. And the shop signs um, were specially designed to be in keeping with signs from the inns and shops on the high street. So they specifically rejected like backlit signs or anything too modern so that it would like reflect what was already there on the high street. Unfortunately, the original signs have pretty much all been replaced now. So we, we don't have the original ones, which were, were nicer. And there's also car parking provision, and they try to retain some of the old orchard trees and give the area like a landscaped feel. So it was more, it was more like a park with some car parking rather than car parking with some trees. There was originally an artwork called um, Batrachian Cascade by Christine Fox, which again is no longer there. It's been taken away. Uh, along with a lot of the original pergolas and seating. And it's actually this loss of original features that meant when it was nominated for listing, it was only the housing on Silver Street that um, listed status because the rest of Crawfridge Close had lost its significant elements that eroded its detail. So it's only the housing that kept that kind of stuff. So that's the only thing they gave listed status. We have photos of the artwork and the original signs are brilliant. Yeah, we do. Um, there's definitely um, evidence of what was there originally. Yeah, so they also increased the car parking spaces, which um, meant you lost that kind of garden with a with car parking provision mm -hmm. type of feel to what is there now, where it's it's not that anymore. It's just, <laughs> it's just a car park. It's just a car park, really. <laughs> um, and a few months ago, we talked about the Agora in Morverton, which actually shares a lot of similarities with Coffridge Close in that it was aimed to be a multi-use building, consolidating retail facilities in an existing town. It was designed and built in red brick at around the same time. And also both design teams were led by architect Wayland Tumbley. But Coffridge Close feels like it was a more successful development. Its retail space was all let before it opened. Mm. And if we remember at the Agora, it wasn't. Coffridge Close actually had an official opening, whereas the Agora didn't. Um, and it seems to have been accepted by the community in a way that the Agora never really felt like it was accepted. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to do a deep dive into comparing these two developments. Absolutely. Um, and what factors helped or hindered them. Also, you could compare the Brunel Centre in Bletchley as well, because that went in a completely different direction, especially in terms of architecture and design. So those like three existing towns and the retail facilities they all given by the Newtown Corporation. Yeah, somebody needs to do like a dissertation or a PhD on that. And Coverage Close won awards at the time, um, but like many other buildings designed and constructed during the Newtown era, you sort of wonder where it's going now. Stony isn't actually a place I visit often. I'm less familiar with it, but it does feel like the original ideals of Coverage Close 
have eroded over time and it needs a little TLC. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got right there, right now, you've got a supermarket, got a dry cleaners, and a, an Indian restaurant is the first a, things you see when you come in off the high street. Is there a dentist or something? There's a dentist well? like round the back and through 18 alleys. Okay. The first time I went to Coffridge Coast, I just got lost yeah. immediately. <laughs> yep, it is a little bit tricky. <laughs> I really only ever like parked there because it's the only place in Stony I know where to park. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we bring it back to the museum, one of the buildings on the high street that was demolished to make way for Coffridge Close was a pub called the Angel Inn. And some of the Angel Inn was saved and is now the pub in our street of shops. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so cool. So you can come along to the street of shops and have a look at the Angel Inn. It's the little bar and you can like pretend to have a drink. That's quite interesting. We've got, we have the excavations from Coffridge Close from before they did the development. Oh, really? And there's nothing. It, there's a lot of post-medieval stuff, so you know, Victorian things, and you've got a lot of ceramic. Yeah. Which might be in keeping with where the inn was. There's actually just not that much archaeology that came no. out of it. It's interesting that they excavated, actually. Yeah. Did they think there was something of interest there? I just, I think you have to excavate before you do any building. Yeah. And they probably just found a few areas that were important. I mean, you, you, it's not I think, you have to, it's law, and Milton Keynes had that law before everyone else. Yeah, but... and I suppose especially if you're doing something in such a historic uh, town, yeah. it's even more important because there actually might have been something. Absolutely. Stony is quite historic. But yeah, no, ironically, not nothing. much. <laughs> I can't say nothing because then that would be me being very biased against post-medieval archaeology, which I am, but I shouldn't be you shouldn't when I describe it. <laughs> there is post-medieval archaeology there. <laughs> Fascinating stoneware ceramics. So did you know that there was a Roman temple near Stony Stratford? No, I did not. But Well, it makes sense, I guess. Well, with the Roman road, but this is really exciting. <laughs> well, I should say, um, we think there was a Roman temple okay. at Stony Stratford. Um, we can never really know we can with archaeology. Really no, it's absolutely... <laughs> this is what I'm learning. <laughs> it's one of the things that when you watch archaeology shows on TV and people are making these kind of broad sweeping claims and you're like, well, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. <laughs> and that's basically the main issue with archaeology. But I can give you the facts okay. and then extrapolate from there what you and will. And then we can make wild um, accusations. Yeah, wild accusations. So in 1789, mm -hmm. uh, in Windmill Field at Old Stratford, so further up from Stony, an urn was found which contained three fibulae, which are bronze brooches, uh, Roman brooches, two headdresses, a regalia which i'll go into what that is in a bit and 50 to 60 fragments of silver and bronze votive plaques as well as some fragments of other objects including roman musical instruments Ooh. so i want to know how big this urn was because i've actually <laughs> never seen pictures of it but like <laughs> it sounds like yeah. a big storage jar rather than kind of a, a little cremation urn. amazing so this is 1789 1789 Wow. So because it was 1789, in regards to how it was discovered, that's it. That's all we know. Okay. And because there was no Milton Keynes Museum at that time, all of the finds went to the British Museum, where they are currently on display or in storage. And because they are of national significance, they will stay at the British Museum. Oh, national significance. Yes, national significance. So I will explain the significance in case you're like, I don't, I don't see how any of this is significant. <laughs> Um, 
So Roman temples must have been a pretty dramatic sight on the Romano-British landscape. Normally they're on hills, they're in high vantage points, you think of the mausoleum at Bancroft, that is on the hill opposite the villa. Yeah. It would have been something that you would have seen in the landscape, very similar to what Brits were doing before the Romans came in. Think of megalithic sites like Stonehenge, you know, when you're driving past Stonehenge it looks like Play-Doh but you see it in the distance. <laughs> yep. uh, these are meant to be things that you look at because the Romans didn't have Google Maps. Yeah. So I, I always think of Roman buildings actually in the, the Romano-British landscape as almost being like seeing a post-modernist building in the English countryside, right? Yeah. I think they would have stuck out like that because they're normally square or rectangular versus Iron Age buildings which were circular. Very straight lines. Yeah, very straight lines. So I normally think about that. It, it would have been something that aesthetically almost would have been jarring almost. Mm. Um, now, not all Romano-British temples follow that square or rectangular shape, but a lot of them do. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, in regards to archaeological evidence for Romano-British temples from Milton Keynes, we don't actually have any evidence of ones that have a Roman religious structure. So it's quite difficult to say that this one would have had, but it's important to, to keep it in mind. So, so the, the finds are what makes this site uh, important because we don't have a structure, no. right? Um, so how can we actually say these finds would have been related to a temple rather than just some random stuff? So I mentioned the headdresses. Um, I will put a photo in with this so yeah. people can see what I'm talking about. But basically the headdresses were a conical piece, piece of bronze that would have sat on the top of your head. And then there would have been attached these leaf-shaped pieces. Roman leaves kind of look like hearts, but upside down, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, they, so don't think of like a maple leaf. It's not like a Canadian headdress. <laughs> um, so you would have had these leaf-shaped pieces of bronze, which went down from the conical part, and then chains hanging down from those. So you can definitely see how it looks like it would sit on your head. Sounds really dramatic. Um, it is, they're very, very dramatic. The, the more complete one is on display at the British Museum in their Romano-British Gallery. Oh, and they've got it on like um on a stand so you can actually see how it would hang around a head and it's very cool to look at um the second one's a bit different it's got a flat cap and rosettes instead of the conical cap and leaves but it's the same it's the same basic principle mm -hmm. so these have been identified as headdresses because it's pretty obvious they go on your head they dress your head yes absolutely there's not another body part that you're going to be able to put this on <laughs> and actually have it work the regalia which i mentioned is actually the more interesting one of these so it's also copper alloy and it's made up of articulated pieces of bronze that look like some sort of harness. Um, so harnesses are like coming back into fashion now as well, especially in like alternative fashion. And that's kind of what they look like. Um, I struggle with this though, because I'm really struggling to find um, visual representations of this regalia and also the headdresses actually being worn. So I look at sculptural evidence of, you know, processions of Roman religion and I'm, I can't see anything that looks like this so if you are listening and you know of any sculptural representation please let me know because i am struggling <laughs> yeah um, i'm sure the evidence has to exist i don't think people would be making these identifications without evidence mm. it's just that i'm i'm not finding it struggling to picture like what a regalia would be like where would you wear that i think you'd wear it on your chest okay so try, I'm trying to think what a modern, what a Does modern it like hang on your shoulders be. or something. Yeah, okay. yeah, and then it goes across oh, yeah. and like does up at the front and back. It that is also on display. But you look at it and you're a bit like, I don't, I don't understand how this works at <laughs> all. Um, I kind of guess it's sort of like the um, Roman legionaries when they got their medallions in battle. 
they would wear like a leather harness and they would actually put the medallions on the harness mm -hmm. so i wonder if it's a bit like that almost but without the like military aspect to it yep I don't know how useful that is for imagining what these regalia look like. But these are important. These are significant because there are very few examples of headdresses and regalia in the archaeological record point blank, let alone in England. Oh, really? Yeah, they're not something that's a very common find. And these objects were discovered in an urn with other religious objects, which are the votives, which I'll get to in a second. So they've been interpreted as religious themselves. So the regalia is possibly worn by a priest, the headdress is worn by a priestess, so on and so forth. But again, I'm not going to say that, like, yeah, that's 100% because I would like to see some representation of that. Yep. But that is what scholarship has said so we will we'll take their uh, word for it we'll for now go with it what i find more interesting actually is the silver and bronze plaques which were found with the regalia in the headdress so these plaques are fragmentary they are thin metal cut into a leaf shape again and they were commonly nailed to the walls of temples as offerings to the gods and requests for things when visiting the temple so the thing about Roman religion is that um, you pray to the gods to either make something happen or to make something not happen. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the Romans used to pray to Vulcan to make sure they didn't have any fires which would ruin their crops. So they would burn crop, they would burn grain to Vulcan to say, hey, please don't set our stuff on fire. Yeah. Or you could pray to a god to be like, hey, I want this thing to happen. And so your prayer was this votive plaque. You put that in the temple. That's your offering because you often had to pay for it. Think of like when you go into churches and they've got the candles and you can pay 50p or a pound to light a candle. Mm. It's that same idea. You'd pay to have your, your plaque put on the wall and you know if you were really fancy you get a gold one you could get an inscribed one if you weren't so fancy you get a bronze one so on and so forth were they being really clear about on the plaque like this is exactly what i want actually no yeah. which is quite interesting the plaques normally have figures of gods on or inscriptions prayers to gods but very few of them actually seem to say Dear Apollo, I would like as like a Christmas list to Santa, um, which is weird because we know that in the the Greco-Roman sphere, people did ask for very precise things. If you went to a temple of a healing god, for instance, yeah. and say you had an earache, you would actually leave a votive of a fake ear made out of clay to that god to be like, please fix my ear. Yeah. Here's a fake one I made just so, to show you what an ear looks exactly. Like. So we know that they did specifically ask for the very certain things in votive so i'm not sure what the what the logic is here but you know we'll, we'll go with it we'll go with yeah. it maybe you had to say it the the prayer vocally maybe there was a verbal aspect that we we lose in the archaeological record yeah. so the pra the plaques from stony have a variety of gods on them including minerva mars and mercury obviously mercury he's our guy we've got lots of mercurial stuff yes. having minerva and mars is actually really interesting because they are you know, very standard Roman gods, but we don't have a lot of worship for them in Milton Keynes. No. We, we've got some stuff for Iron Age gods, we've got potential Mithras, Mercury stuff, but seeing you know the, the big cheeses of the Roman pantheon isn't something that you normally yeah, see Yeah, which here. seems really strange. Yeah, it does, which is why I wonder if we're looking at a really Roman temple rather than a Romano-British temple. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, votives don't have designs on them at all for gods, they've just got patterns that make the plaque look like a leaf oh, yeah. and those ones are really nice the beautiful geometric designs um and then some of them have prayers We've got one that's a copper alloy plaque which actually has a dedication to mars on it which mm -hmm. is really cool i think that's our only one that has just writing on that's really oh. really nice 
The other items in the hoard included a bell and part of a rattle. These are common musical instruments. Musical instruments is fine. We've got lots of depictions of musical instruments being used in religious rites. Making lots of loud noises is to attract the attention of the gods. It's also to ward off evil spirits. Apparently gods like music, evil spirits don't. Okay. I think if there were like 50 people ringing bells and rattling, I would be more on the side of the evil spirits for yeah. this one. <laughs> like, please shut up. Yeah, I'd be like, you know what? That's fine. If it was tuneful, melodic, that would be fine, but rattles and bells <laughs> don't sound like that. I assume they had other instruments like drums and lyres and stuff, but obviously those aren't going to fit in an urn, so we're not going to get those. So yeah, so this this hoard is pretty significant. You've got all these very nice objects. You know, I'm not even going to talk about the gold brooches because they're just gold brooches at the yeah. end of the day. But you've got some high status, very rare objects which seem to be relating to a temple. But what does this actually tell us about Roman Milton Keynes, other than the fact that no, there probably was a temple here? We have to assume that the objects come from around here. There's a possible site on that field, which is a crop mark, with a stone scatter slightly north of it. So that could be our temple base. Mm -hmm. It's never been excavated. So if that is the temple base, why would all of the stuff, presumably from that temple, be buried and hidden in a field? Um, for anyone who tuned into the new Bradwell episode, you remember my discussion about why hordes are buried in the Bronze Age, and the reasons don't really change. Mm -hmm. We've got votive, something given to the gods, mercantile, burying goods for later trade, or craft, burying materials to lose them later, to use them later, sorry, not lose them <laughs> later, and Lastly, disruptive. People burying things to come back for them later because they've been ousted from their homes. Yeah. So I think we can rule out mercantile and craft. The items aren't broken, so they're unlikely to be stored for melting. And they don't seem to be something that you'd trade. I don't think there was a big market for headdresses specifically for, for religious ceremonies. No. So, you know, I'm happy to prove them wrong on that. So you've got the other two categories. Was this hidden for the intention of coming back to, maybe related to the destruction of the temple, or was this a deliberate votive deposit? We've got similar hoards in the UK found at Barkway and Ashwell, and these have been described as deliberate hoards from a temple environment, or what we call structured temple hoards, which are where objects are put in the ground in a very specific order yeah. as an offering to a god. There doesn't seem to be any archaeology to dictate a period of destruction in Milton Keynes during this time, so it's most likely a religious offering. But what does that tell us about the local community? We've got precious metals, the gold brooches, high-status religious objects, and musical instruments being put in a pot and buried in the ground. So they're no longer accessible. Once you give something to the gods, you can't take it back. No. So the community's got to be wealthy enough that they're actually willing to give these things to the gods and mean that there's you can't have them. Now, we know that during the 3rd and 4th century, the Roman Milton Keynes population seems to be quite well off. Bancroft's got its renovation. It expands massively, gets all its new mosaics. Wavington Gate and other sides are growing settlements and they've got small-scale production going on. Magiavinium is the central trade point, so it seems to be doing pretty well. Mm. Enough so that residents are paying for silver and bronze votive plaques to be left at a temple. Yep. So And then to be then deposited, so it's obviously not, not a poor community. But what about Stony itself? We don't have any Roman archaeology from Stony. We've got lots of medieval, we've got Civil War era, we've got Victorian, but there's no... Roman stuff coming out of Stony Stratford. No. Now we know that that's an important crossing. If you look at where Toaster and St Albans are, two of our main Roman sites during that area, you're going to have to go through that area of Stony to get yeah. from one to the other. So is it possible 
that that temple is actually associated with potentially an ephemeral um, military outpost. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right? If you've got a military marching through, they're going to have temporary outposts with maybe a small ephemeral market, some stalls and things like that. Is it possible that there was one of those in Stony, which would predicate actually having a temple there? Yeah. Um, because it doesn't make any sense to have a temple there if your settlements aren't near it. Um, yeah. Now, this, this is completely, completely off the cuff because there's no evidence. It's just an idea looking at how strategic it is as a vantage point and looking at what else is around it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to say it is or it isn't. If anyone's got any opinions on it, I would love to hear them. Yeah. But also it's quite an interesting comment on the Romanization in the area. We're not looking at Romano-British gods. I've talked about that before with you know, Tyrannus and things like that. We're not looking at Roman gods who have been mixed or syncretized with an Iron Age god to appease the local population. Mm. We're looking at Roman gods, Minerva, Mars, and Mercury. Like the proper um, guys. Yeah, the, the, the dudes themselves. We're only missing Jupiter, basically. So is it that... We're he's got a, a wheel down at Wavendale. He's got a wheel. No, no, he's got the wheel. Um, you know, are we looking at potentially a period of Romanization where actually the Romans aren't feeling that they need to incorporate the Iron Age gods in? Mm. Or are we looking at a period where Roman religion is more being forced to keep a population in check? Like, which one are we looking at here? Um, or maybe it's neither. Maybe I'm just extrapolating ideas. Maybe they were just, like, really super Roman. Maybe they were just really Sarah. super Roman, absolutely. Um, and it's difficult because we don't have an associate building, we don't have any information about this horde, but it's such an interesting find. And it's to think about almost the landscape archaeology, what's going on around that find is possibly the more interesting part than the objects themselves. Yeah. Is that what's the economy look like? What is the, the, the culture look like to have a Roman temple with this high status objects mm. in? So I think hopefully more research to come more is it something where they would be like oh this was found in the 18th century is it worth us doing some kind of whatever you do before you excavate to see what is in that landscape in terms of underground and things like that well, i think they've done it i think that's how they found the crop mark and the stone scatter oh, okay. um but i don't think anything else has been done past that the issue with it being in old stratford is that technically it's northamptonshire yeah. and therefore not buckinghamshire so it's um, there might be information that we're just not privy to as being a collecting area of Mill and Keynes. But that, that border is kind of terrible, right? Because Old Stratford and Stony Stratford are still going to be related yeah. in the historical record. They're just one side or the other to the river. So separating it as two different collecting areas. Those political boundaries don't actually have any significance because culturally they're you know, so closely related. Exactly. We get this with Passenham as well, is that it's on the border and it's, well, where does the archaeology go to? Who's in charge of it? And collating information. Well. Yeah, exactly. And collating information when you've got a related site that's in two different areas can be quite difficult. Mm. Um, there are some other odd things that have come up from Old Stratford, which I'm trying to hunt down now, actually. Um, one of the the windows in the past book that talks about Milton Keynes' history talks about a... Um, a wooden votive arm 
which class yeah so um the romans used to hang offerings on statues and after a little while they realized that actually the limbs were getting damaged so they would make the statue of the god or goddess out of bronze and they'd make the limbs out of wood so when the limb was too covered in offerings they'd take it out and put a new one in so somewhere there is a wooden arm from old Stratford again, which I have had no luck in tracking down. I have asked a ton of people about it, but I think it's from the same field as this urn. Yeah. So is that potentially related to the temple and there would have actually been a statue? Are we are we missing a statue? <sighs> How cool statue. would that be? That would be so cool. So yeah, there's a lot of um there's a lot of interesting religious stuff going on in Milton Keynes and unfortunately a lot of it is just tracking down through decades and decades of archaeology where are these objects yeah. but yeah lots of interesting stuff to think about you know especially if this temple has a bronze statue with wooden arms I mean this is this is not a little tiny temple belonging to a family this is a proper temple yeah and so in terms of it all being buried in like a little bit of a hoard why would they have done that do we know or is it is it like uh, that would that have been a religious thing that they did yeah votive offerings buried in the ground are very common i mean from the beginning of roman religion you look at the etruscans you look at archaic roman religion and like the latin cultures and stuff that is something that is just constantly done um you can either give a tribute through fire or you can give a tribute by burying it in the ground. Oh, yeah. um, it's just it's very, very common. So like you were saying, they would have been quite wealthy because then they could have gone and got uh, another headdress to wear mm -hmm. um, and putting one in the ground didn't mean too much to them if they had that much money. Well, that's the thing that like, you think about. Obviously, religion permeated everything um, ancient cultures did but not in the way that we think of it, if that makes sense. So because Roman religion especially was a public religion, whether you really bought into it or not, it, it was just part of your, your, your daily life. You walk into a house, you sprinkle an offering on, on the uh, lorarium, the, the temple of that house, because it's, it starts to tie into superstition as well as religion. So if you think about that aspect, you give anything to the gods, really. So the fact that you're giving something that's, that that's worth that much economically means you have to be a somewhat wealthy community yeah otherwise you you simply wouldn't give that because it's not about holier than thou kind of attitude it's literally this is something that's just done so you can give anything yeah so it makes you think about what what level of wealth the community is actually working with and because we normally other than bancroft all of our sites seem to be you know quite homely villas or small production sites where where is this coming from <laughs> yeah it seems quite random doesn't it absolutely but i love how we've gone really ancient and really modern and we haven't touched in between which is what stony stratford is most famous for <laughs> so we've been highlighting some stuff that's actually probably lesser known in stony history which yeah. um, i really love yeah yeah i think it's quite there's a lot going on in stony and it's quite a fun place to talk about just to think about it even even when you walk down it now if you go if you walk down the high street think about how that existed in, in its same essence in the civil war and potentially how it existed in its same essence in the roman period and yeah. everything in between because 
things don't change. I mean, one of the things I love about Stone is you've got the cobblers. There's not a lot of cobblers anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I love shoes, so I don't like it when my shoes break. I will take them to the cobblers. That is something that would have been there in the medieval period. That is something that the Romans also would have had, because guess what? Hobnails are a pain to put in your boots. You yeah. would have had someone else do it for you. And thinking about those shops on, on the Stony Stratford High Street, that hasn't really changed. Humans have always needed the same exact concept to get things done for them. Yep. Somewhere to drink, somewhere to get your shoes fixed, somewhere to buy your food. It all kind of carries through time, doesn't it? Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We Thank will see you. you in the next episode. See you next time. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.